Hello, and welcome to MonarCast. I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And we are back from a kind of unplanned hiatus, um, talking about royals again. And yeah, I think we're just going to freely acknowledge that these times aren't lending themselves well to a regular schedule. No, in fact, I have an oops to report in that I never posted about our last episode on Instagram. Because <laughs> um, I was going through our old episodes, like I like to do that before we record just to see like where we left off on gossip and things like that. And I realized like we had an entire episode that I had forgotten about because I hadn't posted it to Instagram. So I will, I will remedy that today. Um, hopefully if you get notifications, if you subscribe on iTunes, you should have seen it. If not, surprise, now you have two episodes to listen to. Um, that, we did a, one of our scandal episodes on, um, King Juan Carlos in Spain and his abdication crisis and all of that. So, it's a short episode, but, you know, a nice, nice piece of entertainment if you're looking for that. So, oops. (laughs) Yeah. And I believe today's episode was going to be a 4th of July special that we never did. <laughs> yeah, it was. Look, look I, I got very, very busy at work, okay? <laughs> no, I mean, that's what I mean. It's like, I think we're just not going to, we're going to embrace this erratic schedule and just forewarn everybody to, it'll be a surprise when we have an episode for, for a while. Yeah, it's, it's just hard to plan right now. I think everyone out there is feeling it. I mean... I don't even think anyone thought this would still be going on in July. And I guess I'm assuming most of the people listening are in America. But if you're not, it's it's really bad here. And it's been poorly handled. And we're really going to suffer for it as a country, I think. And um, it's going to be a while before we get back to, you know, quote-unquote normal. So, um that's, you know, we're all, and we're all just dealing with that, um, you know, working from home for months. Um, in Allie's case, you have an entirely new job <laughs> that yeah. you're onboarding to. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's day by day. I did, I did finally, after months, manage to bake a pretty epic loaf of sourdough bread, though. You so. did. So, congratulations. Yeah, I think this is, though, a good starting point for our gossip conversation, though, because as we know from following some of these stories in the past few months, the royals are also experiencing upheaval in their lives, just like the rest of us, and they've had their own plans thwarted by um, the virus and quarantine and, you know, safe social distancing. So um, let's jump into that. I think, should we start with the wedding? Yeah, so um, if you're... A royal follower, you're probably aware that Princess Beatrice got married, and I think this was originally scheduled for earlier in the summer, wasn't it? Probably. Um, and of course, with the shutdowns in Great Britain, they couldn't do the wedding that they were envisioning. I think we talked about this on our last episode, where they had, were going to do uh, not the full-scale wedding that... Eugenie got, which was a little bit notable because Beatrice is the oldest daughter of Prince Andrew, but given Prince Andrew's ongoing scandals and subsequent retirement from royal life, it's, I think, not seen as appropriate to do the big state wedding. Um, But, you know, then the pandemic happened and they had to scrap all of the plans. And they just 
announced last week that they had done the wedding at Windsor, um, at Andrew's house in Windsor, um, and it looked like a really great, intimate English country wedding. I don't know if that's what Beatrice originally wanted, but I think as far as weddings go, hers was like picture perfect. Um, I actually feel like she could not have done it better. Then, yeah, I mean, like, there were, if she had had the only... big celebration, it wouldn't have been as pretty. Right. I mean, there was the, just something about flowers. it. You're right. Like, it's just small, intimate, gloomy English day. And yeah. And apparently she looked there were perfect. only 30 people in attendance. So, you know, the, that, that takes a load of stress off as a bride. And, and so the details were actually really sweet. So she got to wear the Queen's tiara that she wore at her wedding and princess anne wore at her wedding and i I do want to talk about this a little bit but um and it's it's the queen mary fringe tiara and it's actually a pretty big significant tiara so it was a big deal that she wore that and she also wore a dress of the queen's that had been remade for her into a wedding dress that i think the queen wore originally in like the 50s um but it all taken together had this really great vintage effect that I, I thought was really charming. Yeah. And with the flowers that they chose, it just all went really well together. And, you know, she looked really great. And I think, yeah, the dress was, I had read that it was maybe a last minute decision that they made, but it worked really well. And I think it probably was like, you know, whatever she was going for originally probably was bigger, more expensive. I mean, I think a big piece of this, you know, there's there's a lot of factors at play here, right? Because Andrew's scandal has only gotten worse. Um, and I think they didn't want to bring any more attention to that. And she's unfortunately, we talked about this before, she's suffering from her father's mistakes, whether or not that's fair. Um, but also, timing-wise, you know, if you're going to do a royal wedding in the midst of a pandemic with, um, you know, global suffering it maybe looks a little better to recycle a little bit and I do wonder if the queen had a say in that you know her own wedding we talked about she her dress was made from rationed silk and you know her wedding had to be kind of tailored for post-war Britain so I do think they kind of hit the nail on the head with the messaging around this of like we had a royal wedding but it was tastefully appropriate for what's going on in the world. Which is also like another level of unfairness, right? That she's the one whose wedding has to hit that note. But you know, a lot of people are going through that and I think that makes her pretty relatable. I mean, I know people that have gotten married during this pandemic and their weddings look nothing like they thought they would. But you know, when it comes down to it, is it really about the big splashy event or is it about getting married and starting your life together? And you know, there's something romantic about doing it in the midst of all this uncertainty. So I don't know if it was a PR play, but if it was, it was brilliant. And if not, you know, it, it I think, was done well. Right. And she gets, she gets the positive press as a benefit. Um, but I did want to talk about the tiara a little bit because I did say this to you. I said, um, you know, this kind of, for me, sort of, reinforce that tiara story that we talked about when when Eugenie got married because she had that beautiful emerald tiara and if you remember there was that story that came out about how Megan had demanded an emerald tiara and everybody was a little bit flummoxed because the only emerald tiara they could think of was like this like massive tiara that nobody would think of giving a bride to wear for her wedding 
Um, but I, the reason I said that it makes me believe that story a little bit more, and again, I want to reiterate, I do not believe there was a ten- temper tantrum thrown about a tiara, but I do believe that Megan may have requested it and was turned down because when I saw Beatrice wearing that tiara, it kind of made me think that, you know, the queen has known what tiaras those two girls are going to wear to their weddings for a very long time. I mean, things like that are planned, they're earmarked, they're set aside. And when I saw, you know, the queen's, you know, she's not the oldest granddaughter because, um, Zara is the queen's oldest granddaughter, but Zara doesn't have a title, and Andrew's really big on Beatrice and Eugenie being blood royals, blood princesses. She's the oldest daughter of her favorite son. I have to kind of believe that if Zara wasn't going to wear that tiara, and she wouldn't because she's not an HRH, and that, as we talked about, it's a pretty grand tiara, I have to kind of believe that the, that was at least planned. And I'm just curious what you think about that. Well, yeah, I mean, and Zara also is coming from it where she wore a tiara, I believe, that was significant in um, Philip's family. So so she wore like a Greek tiara or something. I was just catching up on this recently. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. I also have always been really skeptical about the idea of, like, Megan throwing a temper tantrum over this. Like, I just feel like her coming in as a guest of this family, like, and having to, like, obviously she doesn't have a royal tiara of her own to bring to the table. She seems, to me at least, from the outside, like the type who would be grateful for the generous loan of any of these. Right. Um, I think we said that in the episode where we talked about this, was like, as a new, as a newbie coming in, that's not the hill you're going to die on. Right. (laughs) You know. I do think, however, like, maybe somebody messed up and gave her a binder of photos of like these are what we have and nobody communicated what was off limits and what wasn't and the reason I truly believe that is because when I look at the ineptitude as the way the media has been handled in the last couple years by not the Kensington Palace staffers only but like the Queen's own Mm -hmm. staffers and Charles's staffers like I just feel like it's obvious these people do not communicate with each other. And so any decisions that had been made might be known to like Andrew and his daughters and the queen, but they may not have been communicated outward from there. So, and and, and Andrew is under the Buckingham Palace staff. So like, you know, they've got easier paths of communication. I believe what was reported as a temper tantrum was probably a back and forth of, okay, I picked this one from this binder that you gave me. Oh, sorry, word come came down. You can't use that one. It's reserved. Well, what do you mean? Why would it be in the binder if it's reserved? Well, you know, like, I'm sure there was, like, clarification happening. Right. Because um, that's how I would approach it is, like, if it was off limits, why would you even give it to me as an option? <laughs> so Well, and I think that you bring that up, and that's a really good segue into the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is today... A bunch of excerpts were released from this book that's being published about Harry and Meghan called Finding Freedom, and I want to talk about the excerpts, but one of the things that is made obvious is the fact that none of of these offices communicate, and they're all throwing each other under the bus trying, like, jockeying for position, Um, you know, because, like, Charles's people care about Charles, and the Kensington Palace people care about William. And, you know, the Buckingham Palace people care about the Queen. And it's, like, competing interests. They're not all fighting, really, for the common good. It's, it's, so that, I thought that, that was one of the, 
points that was made, and I think that you are illustrating that with the tiara, is that it, that's probably exactly what happened. And then it got reported as bad behavior because they're all trying, you know, they're trying to make Andrew look good, so in turn they try to make Le- Megan look bad. I actually really believe that a lot of the internal leaking and reporting on not even just Megan being a nightmare or even Harry and William fighting, which I think they aren't getting along, but like even the little digs about, you know, William being full of himself and like Kate crying because Megan, like, like I truly believe someone somewhere was like, let's get everybody talking about this so they don't talk about Andrew. Because Andrew's issues have been over a year in Mm -hmm. the spotlight and they've been just swept under the rug. And, you know, I also think Charles's people too, it's like, they're very aware that like Charles's time is on the horizon. Like it's coming sooner rather than later. And so, you know, they need to make his kids look bad so that he can look better. And that's really terrible, honestly, if you think about like family dynamics. But um, unfortunately, that seems to be the way they think they need to do it. I mean, I think I look at it from the outside and I'm like, this is crazy. Like you could all present yourselves as good people. And (laughs) why does everybody have to be better than the other? Um, So I, so it's interesting. So this is all like what's being reported. So I just want to do like a brief summary because I'm not going to read this book. But no, oh, come on. Sounds like yeah. a great homework assignment. Right, right. Um, Maybe I'll read it and do a book report. There you, you should. Cause, so it's done by two reporters. One is, um, I forget their names. I know one is the that Omid Scobie who does, he's on the Royal Beat. I don't think he's part of the Royal Rota, but he's um, he, he covers the Royals. And his, an American counterpart, and I forget her name, and so I'm sorry. Maybe you can, you know, expand on this when you do your book report. But they wrote this story, and they spoke to, like, a hundred people, allegedly, about this. People in all the, in Buckingham Palace, Kensington Palace, Clarence House, all the different camps, friends of Harry and Meghan. Harry and Meghan have come out and said that they are not involved in this book. I don't really believe that because... That might be true in a technical sense. Yes. I think that they're not involved in the sense that they are not promoting it. They are not, you know, maybe necessarily on the record in the book. But I think if, given the the patterns we've seen of Harry and Meghan, if they did not want this book coming out, you'd hear more condemnation and perhaps even some legal action, as opposed to, oh, we're, we're not involved. Um, I think they very much want this book to come out, and I think they do see it as their side of the story. Given what's coming out, though, I think it's a little bit of a misfire, because what's coming out is, is, is everything that's already been reported. It's William and Harry aren't getting along. Megan didn't fit in because... Um, you know, it was really hard for her to fit in with the hierarchy. So this is what we're talking about. You know, Megan and Harry saw it as we're really popular. We should get more support, more promotion from the family because we're, we're valuable assets. Whereas everybody in the royal family operates from the hierarchy. The hierarchy rules everything. The order of succession. That, that governs everything that they're doing. The quote-unquote vipers. That is a term that has been used. Um, complaining about how they couldn't respond to every negative story in the press. So there was a difference in opinion on how to handle the press. William and Kate, I guess, are very happy to stick to the never complain, never explain. 
Harry and Meghan wanted to cut out the press more and be more proactive in responding to negative stories. This is all stuff that's already been reported. Um, then there were, like, you know, there's more stuff coming in about, like, when they left um, the royal family, you know, back in March. Apparently it was really all driven by Harry, so they're kind of, like, setting the record straight there, where it really wasn't Meghan driving it. Because Meghan, from her perspective, allegedly felt like she had given up everything and wanted to make it work. Harry was driving more of the, you know push to leave. But but all the excerpts that I read, I kind of thought to myself, okay, none of this is new. It's not really adding anything. If anything, you've got a lawsuit going on. You've, you're claiming that you don't want to involve the press, but you've clearly authorized your friends to speak on your behalf, because if you hadn't, you'd be much more forceful in denying it. I'm just not sure this is going to be viewed positively because it doesn't change anything and it just undermines the message that you don't want to be involved with the press I think because the press is going to take this and have a field day and twist everything into a negative story and the thing about stories like this too is and books is like you know this is exactly the same story as like when Charles came out with his like biography by some maybe the same royal reporter I'm not sure um it doesn't even make him look good it doesn't make any of them look good it just shines a light on how they're all jockeying for position which is not a very flattering light because they they simultaneously want to convey that they're above it all and yet they're clearly participating in this game and so it just makes them all look like a bunch of hypocrites so like really it's it's honestly like it does give a little bit of I guess sensibility to this never complain never explain philosophy because that's the only way you can truly be above it all you know you and I have talked a lot about how there are certain circumstances especially around the racist the racist coverage of Megan where that just doesn't cut it but and I'm sure that's in the book but none of the excerpts that I read were about that Right, but I, what I mean is, like, this does not seem to help anyone's case. It just makes them all look really silly, especially at a time when the world is dealing with much graver problems. Yes. And and also what I would question is, like, some of this idea of, like, they wanted things a certain way. It's like Harry would know from day one how it's going to be. Like, he would know it doesn't matter who's popular. It's all about pecking order and, you know, all of this. So I just question the reporting as well so reading between the lines I take it as it's like all ego I mean all we've talked about this before these people have massive egos why wouldn't you if you're but like they all like for Harry to then say he wants to leave because he's over it but then be part of the reason he's over it is because he didn't get the deference he felt he's deserved like you can't be both simultaneously over it and then frustrated because you're not the most important person in, well, in the room. I think it's one thing to be told your whole life that one day you won't be as important as your brother, and it's an entirely different thing to live through it. Maybe. Especially when you've been, you've grown up being told how important you are. I mean, all of these people have. And I think, um, you know, the way they all use each other to kind of shield, like, to shield each other from negative press. Oh, don't write that bad story about me. I'll give you something bad about Andrew. Or I'll give you something bad about Charles. I guess the point I'm trying to make is why participate now in this mess? 
and and look, there's plenty of unauthorized biographies out there about the royal family. It's just the fact that they talk to all their friends. It's like this lawsuit that's going on with the Daily Mail, and they're trying to get the friends that went to People magazine on Meghan's behalf to be named, and Meghan's trying to say, like, you, they have a right to privacy, you shouldn't have to name them and expose them, and she keeps insisting that she had nothing to do with that, and I just don't believe it, because... I have a really hard time believing that if all of these people are such close friends, why break the trust and go to the press? Why take that risk? Unless it's they wouldn't sanctioned. be like surprise, happy birthday! We did a press coverage on your behalf. Like yeah, it wouldn't, I just it wouldn't I have a hard time way. believing that. So yeah. you know, this is kind of the same thing. I have a hard time believing that they don't have any involvement, or they haven't at least given people to go ahead and said, "Hey, if you're going to talk to him, make sure this story gets out there. This is my side of it." And look, I understand the urge to want to like correct the record and set the record straight, and I don't blame them for that. But yeah, like you said, now's not really the time. A lot of this is, sounds like it's going to be a rehash. I don't think in the long run it's going to really help them. It's not like it's going to be some bombshells that are going to drop. Um, you know, I think everybody kind of knows what happened. So I'm under I guess underwhelmed you know there's not really anything groundbreaking coming out and I'm also kind of like what's the point but you you know know what I think also every time anything like this comes out is like where someone somewhere is like this is going to vindicate us or like it's just more opportunity for this to kind of break open again and I have to really start to wonder like the queen seems like a really bad leader (laughs) like she does not have her family in line and I know she's old but like a lot of this has been festering for decades. It's like, I don't yeah. know. Like, but I think also she's runner not tighter so con- ship. She's not so concerned with it because I think in her mind it's all petty squabbles and none of it matters. Like I think to her she's like none of that's important. That feels really naive. <laughs> well, naive or willfully ignorant or maybe she just doesn't have time to deal with it. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm not necessarily defending her. I'm just saying I'm not even sure she's all that concerned about it. Um, because, you know, like, all she cares about is the continuation of the crown. But this Um, directly imperils that. Well, have you seen, but I mean, have you seen the crown, you know, the later seasons on that show where, like, it really is, like, whatever you're feeling personally, put it aside for the good of the monarchy. If we're going to survive, you have to, like, get over yourself. And I think that's what some people are struggling with. But I think it's also, like, we've talked about this a little bit, too. It's, like, I think these are a lot of the growing pains that come in the transition. Because, as you just said, it is sooner rather than later Charles is going to become king. William is going to become the Prince of Wales, which means more and more focus is going to be on William's children. And people like Andrew and Harry and, you know, Beatrice and Eugenie and Edward and Sophie are all going to get kind of pushed to the side because succession rules everything. Whether or not you agree with the concept of monarchy, I mean, for now, the system is in place and, you know, it it all comes down to the succession. And I think, but I think if you are living in that, that's got to be really difficult. I don't really have anything more to say. I'm like, just, you know... Maybe I will read this book just because now I kind of want to, but it's, like, not yeah, a new who, conversation. Who knows? Like, maybe all the excerpts that were released were released because they've already been reported, so it's not giving anything away. I don't know if that's a great way to sell a book, so I'm not sure I believe that, but... 
I don't know. Yeah, so maybe you should read it and let us know. Yeah. Um, but I just, that, that like came out today and I just thought that would be a good thing to talk about because I'm just a little surprised at the strategy. I mean, other than that, things have been pretty quiet. Everybody's, you know, muddling through as the rest of us are. Um, Philip turned 99 though, which I think is I know. Impressive. I wanted to mention that because something about that number just really struck me. It's, it's like, he really might make it to 100. Oh, I, I bet he will. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's talk about, speaking of long-lived monarchs, let's talk about today's subject, George III. As, um, as Allie mentioned, this was supposed to air around the 4th of July. So we had picked him as a subject because the Hamilton musical came out and he's a character in that and the 4th of July, we thought it, we'd never really talked about him. So we thought it'd be fun to cover the tyrant king, you know, as he's known in America, um, and maybe see if that's a well-earned reputation or not. So I guess we can jump in. You know, we've covered, we have covered the beginnings of the Hanoverian dynasty with George I coming in after Queen Anne. Um, if you want to listen, we have, you can listen to the episode on Queen Anne where we talk about the end of the Stuart line and um, when we talked about um, the transfer to the German line because they had to skip how many Catholics? 30 people? It was in the 30s. It was quite a lot of people because he was Protestant. <laughs> yeah. So all of that explains how the Georgian kings came to power. But, um, you know, I think George III is a good one to talk about because George I and George II really modernized the monarchy. So in preparation for this, I actually watched a few of those um, YouTube documentaries. I think they're they're... I don't know if the company is Timeline or if it's a BBC production, but there's a whole host of royal documentaries on YouTube that are actually all pretty well done, and they're they're pretty watchable. So I do I do recommend those if you have time to poke around on YouTube. But they were talking a lot about the first two Georges and how they really really modernized the monarchy, and they were able to do that because they were outsiders. They were able to come in and say let's change how this is done, you know, we don't have to be so caught up in ceremony and all of that. But George III is a little different because he's the third Hanoverian monarch um, and the Hanoverians span from George I to Queen Victoria. She's the last, the last one and then the family name switched to Saxa Gotha? Saxa Coburg. Um, well, is this the same house as the one that Prince Albert was from? Well, Albert was Saxa Coburg Gotha. He was Saxa Coburg Gotha, but yeah, Gotha. I think it's Saxa Gotha. Okay, well, so that's why Queen Victoria is considered the last Hanover. Um, that makes sense because she would have been descended from this line, and she was cousins with Albert. So yes, yes, yeah. So you know, George is the third of the Hanoverian kings, and he's the first one to be born in England. Um, which he was pretty proud of. Um, but interestingly for him as well, he's also the longest reigning male monarch in British history. And oh. he's, yeah, and he's third longest reigning after Victoria and Elizabeth II. So he had a pretty I long reign. I didn't know reign. that. So 
I didn't know that either. Um, you know, it's it. I guess from our perspective, we kind of think of him as like a big failure to, you know, the Americans well, over well, here. Well, you so did kind, of, kind think, of hint to me when you were researching this that you felt like maybe he was misunderstood, but that's because I, I of the think, American perspective. I think it's a bad rap over here, but um, I, I had no idea about that, so that I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and he is actually the grandson of George II. So he's the son of Frederick, Prince of Wales, and his wife, mm. Augusta of Saxagota. So that's like, that, you know, they were inbreeding a lot with the German cousins. Um, he's born at Norfolk House in London in 1738. Um, and he was pretty proud of that. He always emphasized that he was a true Englishman because he had been born Well, because on as English we covered soil. in our Hanover episodes... You know, they really had to de-emphasize this German side at first. Mm-hmm. They did. And so, I mean, I think even his father was born in Germany. And it, this is the one where, um, I think we talked about this, but there, if you watch the Netflix um, documentary they have on Hampton Court, and they talk about the Hanoverian kings, they really didn't get along with their heirs. And there's a story of one of them, his wife was in labor, and they fled Hampton Court in the middle of the night while she was giving birth because he didn't want his father to be there when the baby was born. Do you remember that story? Yeah. So that is Frederick and Augusta, George's parents. That baby was not George. Okay. <laughs> it was a girl who died very shortly thereafter. Um, and everybody Maybe was very... because you moved the mother well, during childbirth. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. I mean, the baby could have just died because they did. But everybody was kind of relieved that it was a girl who had died because the circumstances of the birth were so scandalous that they didn't want to have the heir to the throne born under such circumstances. Wow. Um, but these are George's parents, so I just wanted to point that out. George was actually born at Norfolk House in London, and he was two months premature. So he he didn't they did not think he would survive. Um, but that's against amazing the, that he did. Yeah, yeah. So against the odds, he did survive and became the heir, his father's heir. Um, he was shy. He was a shy kid, you know. Well, but well educated, like all of the um, Georgian kings. Um, Generally well regarded. He had a good temper. He he wasn't a jerk. He wasn't he wasn't a bad person. He got along with everybody. Um, his grandfather, the King George II, really took little notice of him because he was estranged from his son Frederick. I mean, they hated each other immensely. Um, but unfortunately for Frederick, Frederick died suddenly in 1756 at the age of 44. Um, he died of a lung injury, so um, I don't know if he caught pneumonia and developed a blood clot. It was something something like that, and it happened very suddenly. So all of a sudden, George is the heir apparent, and he also inherits his father's title of Duke of Edinburgh. Um, so I just kind of wanted to also point out, I took notice of that, speaking of Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, mm -hmm. who's 99. That title has only been created three times in British history. Oh, wow. Yeah. So first, uh, George I created George's son, father, George's father, Frederick, the Duke of Edinburgh. And um, when George becomes king, it merges with the crown. So that's why it didn't continue on down the line, because George became the king. And we talked about that when we talked about our titles. That's why the Duke of Lancaster is a title that Queen Elizabeth holds, because it's merged with the crown. And maybe that's um, why they felt like they could give it to Philip, because technically he's 
the well, there was another to the one. Crown. There was another one in between there. Um, the Queen Victoria made one of her sons the hmm. Duke of Edinburgh, but his male line died out. So it I reverted see. to the crown. So yes, when the Queen married Philip, it was available. And as we've talked about, it's probably going to pass to Edward when his father dies. So interesting side note, Duke of Edinburgh. Um, and then uh, three weeks after he becomes the Duke, uh, he's created the Prince of Wales by George II. So he's it. He's next in line. George is the second is um, suddenly much more interested in him. But George's mother, George III's mother, and sorry, there's so many Georges. Jo- Georges here. Um, <laughs> That's like the main like bane of this podcast is like everybody having the same name. Mm-hmm. I know, like Frederick. It was like, oh, Frederick kind of sticks out. I'm just so happy we're not talking about an Albert today. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so or his mother Edward. kept him pretty close. And she continued to exert control over him. And part of that was because she was very mistrustful of George II because her husband had obviously had issues with his father. But she'd also lost her husband and she didn't want to also lose her son. So she retained a lot of control over him throughout his teenage years. Um, Was very involved in decisions made about his tutors and... Um, and then when he got old enough to get married, shot down a couple of potential brides for him. So she was she was heavily involved. But when George is only 22, George II dies pretty much just as suddenly as his son in 1760. So suddenly England has a young, untested, and unwed king. So first things first, you have to get a wife. Now, I I have to bring this up. I mentioned this to you in a text message. The thing about these YouTube documentaries is that some of them go sideways real quick. (laughs) So I'm watching this documentary and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm learning some good stuff. All of a sudden they start talking about how George has a secret wife named Hannah Lightfoot. And she had at least like two or three kids with him. And she's a Quaker. And she was a Morganatic wife, so their kids would never be in the line of succession. And I'm sitting here like, what? So, this story stems from um, later on in, like, the Victorian era. Someone allegedly produced some documentation that this woman had written her will and signed herself as queen, basically. But there's no real evidence that this happened, and I looked her up. She was seven years older than George. She was a Quaker and would have been disowned. For It's unlikely that George would have married a Quaker, and she did marry outside her faith, and it was a big deal. But her husband reported her as dead and called himself a widow. So I don't know what the story is there, but I felt like I had to bring it up because... If for that to be true, he would have been, like, 16 years old with a secret wife. I have a hard time believing that the Prince of Wales would have been able to get away with that. And we can go back well, to that. Well, it wouldn't be bit. the first time. <laughs> I just, I really don't think it's true. Um, but I thought that was kind of a funny story. So, he did marry Charlotte of mecklenburg strelitz So, she's a German princess, but she's... she's picked because she's the least problematic of all of the available options. So they were going Mm -hmm. through all of the potential brides and they'd either have like 
family scandals or they were too old or they were not considered suitable. Um, she's from an obscure northern German province and therefore George likes her because she's less likely to be interested or even very experienced in politics. He doesn't want a wife that's going to come in and try to insert herself in the political process. He wants someone he considers to be naive and maybe would just be happy to be home with the babies. Um, and she fits the bill. Um, he instructed her not to meddle and she didn't. She stayed out of politics. They met on their wedding day but went on to have a happy marriage. When I mentioned her staying home and having babies, that's pretty much all she did because they had 15 children. Wow. Yeah. And notably... I feel like the succession was secure. <laughs> yes. And George never took a mistress. So this is why I also think if he had a secret wife on the side, surely someone would have at least referred to her as his mistress. Um, and he was pretty... He was pretty pious. So he... Um, He's the one who introduced the Royal Marriages Act, which is where you can't marry in the royal family without the monarch's permission, mm. because his brothers had made such unsuitable marriages that he felt like he needed to introduce a law that would ban future generations from doing so. So I have a hard time believing he'd be so hypocritical if he himself had done that. Don't you Maybe. Think? I don't know. A little weird. But... Whether or not that story is true, by the time he marries Char Charlotte, they're good to go. They have a good marriage. And he bought her Buckingham Palace, or Buckingham House, which was known as the Queen's House, and then eventually grew into Buckingham Palace. So while he was king, all official business took place at St. James's Palace, which is hmm. pretty much next Very door. close to yeah. Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Also, can I just pause for a second and point out the, the names here? Mm -hmm. So we have George, whose wife is Charlotte. That might sound familiar to people, as William's two eldest children are named George and Charlotte. Well, I remember reading one time that William is a big fan of George III. Right. I'm very hopeful that I will find out why <laughs> in, in this episode. I, I think you will. Um, I think he probably like relates to him a little bit, because as a king, George gets a really bad rap. Um this is and this is largely due to the American Revolution and the loss of the American colonies. So the loss was a pretty big deal for Great Britain, but also the um, Americas and later the United States of America had a pretty big role in portraying him as a tyrant. Um, you know, in England they mostly remember him for going mad. But here it's like he was this horrible oppressor. You know, I mean, think back to, like, first grade, second grade when you're learning about this stuff, and it's like, King George was a terrible man who wanted to hold us back and tax us into oblivion. And, you know, sure, <laughs> there's elements of that, but that's propaganda, which we were spreading, and we had a reason to, so... It absolutely is, and I think we mentioned this a little bit in our episode on Charles, who was beheaded, um, but that one of the side effects of his reign and everything politically happening in England at the time was this um, immigration of Puritans to America and this attitude that funneled down, ultimately leading to the revolution. But circling back, you know, this idea that the king is a tyrant, overlord, yes. I mean, it's 
there's certainly like in all cases an element of truth, but also of course we put the word out that he was a bad guy because right. it was in our interest to do so. Right. And, and the because, reality, you know, like, like the thing is, is that the colonists were committing acts of treason. So yes, you want to make mean, it seem as legitimate as possible. The reality is more complex because actually one of the documentaries that I watched, they said he's, he's actually was for the times like a perfect king because he was able to do the three things that every English king should be able to do, which was obey the law shun Roman Catholicism, and acknowledge Parliament. That was all that was expected of him, and he did all of those things so well, almost to his detriment. Um, The real truth is that he inherited a kingdom in debt, heavily in debt, from long periods of war, um, and it was a period of political instability, not only in Europe, but in Great Britain itself. Um, you know, the American Revolution is only a piece of that puzzle, and the issues that George was facing at home, you know, and the American Revolution itself really stem from European conflicts that were ongoing before his reign even began. So let's talk a little bit about the Seven Years' War, which I don't know if do you know much about the Seven Years' War. I know that it has to do with the colonies. Um, Is this also sometimes called the French and Indian War? So they're actually two separate wars, but they are connected. So the Seven Years' War lasted from 1756 to 1763. So if you're keeping track, George became king in 1760. So this had been going on for four years before he even became king. And um, it's... The Seven Years' War itself is a really weird conflict, and it's actually considered the First World War by some historians because it involved a lot of countries in Europe, and it was the result of a realignment of the alliances in Europe that had been around forever. So, you know, if you think back, every time Great Britain would go to war with France, who would be their allies, those partnerships hadn't changed for a really long time. But in the Seven Years' War, you see alliances shift, And the conflict really is two things. So Britain and France were at odds over their interests in the American colonies. Austria and Prussia were fighting for supremacy in Europe. And their conflict stemmed from the War of Austrian Succession, which I'm not going to get into. But it really had to do with their, their conflicts inside and outside of the Holy Roman Empire and the Habsburg dynasty and who was going to inherit. And that's all you have to really know about that. But Prussia and the English sided together against the French and the Austrians. So, you know, it was a little, it was a little different this time around. Um, and the, but the conflict really was global because it was really driven by Prussia and Austria and Britain and France taking sides and then their allies figuring out who they're going to side with. Except that Britain and France are fighting in the colonies. And um, this is your t- when you just mentioned the French and Indian War. That's only a few years prior to all of this. I mean, if you arguably that conflict hadn't really ended, mm-hmm. um, and that was the war where Britain and France went to war over their colonial territory in the Americas, and it's called the French and Indian War because Great Britain was fighting the French, and the French had several native allies. Britain had some European allies and some native tribes, but the French were kind of on their own, and they really only had the Native Americans on their side. And as a result, the French lost pretty badly. 
Um, there were some, you know, financial consequences on both sides because it's expensive to wage a war across an ocean. But the British ended up gaining a lot more territory, um, and I think they also got Florida from the Spanish at the end of that war. And so when we're talking about the American colonies, one of the reasons why it was such a vast territory was because of the result of the French and Indian War. And then the French consolidate in Canada and Louisiana, but they've lost a lot of their territory sort of on the mid of the East Coast there. And then in, over in Europe, by the time Austria and Prussia go to war, it's natural that France and Britain are going to take opposite sides because their conflict is still festering from the French and Indian War. It's also still festering, but you know what's really sticking out to me when I look at this is this idea that you brought up one of the three tenets of being king, right, is to um, shun Roman Roman Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the sides that are chosen here, Mm -hmm. like Prussia and the English siding together against the French and the Austrians, like it's still a continuation of like this religious war in Europe that's been going on for centuries at this point. And the big thing of this, the, when I say the alliances are shifting, is prior to this, Prussia is not really a player. But the end result of the Seven Years' War is that France's power is extremely diminished. They've, lost, they've already lost all their territory in the colonies, but their power in Europe is severely diminished. And Britain emerges as like a superpower, basically. I mean, you could argue that they're the world's first superpower. Um, you know, in, we talked about the m- musical Hamilton, but one of my favorite songs, Guns and Ships, how does a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower <laughs> defeat a global superpower? I mean, that's not a lie. At this time, Great Britain has emerged as a superpower in Europe, and you can say arguably they're global because they're starting to expand their territory outward. And um, I just want to take a moment and really emphasize this point because I'm so glad you brought it up because... We've talked about so many monarchs from Britain at this point, and we've covered centuries of history, and we've definitely talked about the view of Britain in the world as kind of waxing and waning and their power as growing and shrinking, especially in regards to France. But I think this is the moment where they peak. Like, they really, I mean, before the 20th century, but they they really hit their stride here within Europe as, like, a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, and they're expanding their territory not only into the Americas, but we're not really going to get into it, but they're they're already in India for the tea mm-hmm. and, you know, they're continuing to expand there as well. So they they really are a major power and Prussia emerges as a pretty big player on the scene and as you know, they stay that way until World War 1. Um, and do you think that that's related to now the German investment in England, so to speak? Sure, yeah. I mean, you have family ties now that right. weren't there a couple generations ago. I mean, I think it's all related. You could probably draw parallels and, you know, like a spider web, all sorts of reasons why all these alliances started shifting. And, and this has an impact, you know, we're not going to talk about it too much, but this definitely has an impact in France. We, you know, talked about the rise of revolution on our episode of Marie Antoinette. And I mean, this directly plays into that because France had huge financial losses as a result of losing this war. And so, the marriage. So you're now, Mar- t- this war is some of the financial issues that are rearing when Marie Antoinette and Louis are facing the guillotine. Yeah. Like this is the direct consequence. Okay. Yep. Um, so this is all good for England, you know, yay, you've, you've done it, you're a superpower, but war is really, really, really expensive, and it's really expensive to wage it across an ocean. So the financial repercussions of, 
of fighting and winning this war lead to even more conflict in the colonies. Um, so, you know, there's two pieces to this. There's the finances in Great Britain are undergoing reform, and then, then there's what's going on in the colonies. So quickly, I just want to talk about what's going on at home. So, you know, it's really expensive to be king. It's really expensive to keep a monarchy afloat, especially if you have to do it yourself. So in a move that continues to this day, George surrendered the crown estate to Parliament in exchange for support from the civil list. Hmm. We've talked about this. They this is get, how they get their money today. Yeah, they are paid same as funding police departments, um, any kind of civil government, everything. The monarchy gets brought under that umbrella. And um, this is actually really good for George because he had a lot of debts. Parliament pays his debts. It's estimated that over his lifetime they paid up to $3 million, which is an astronomical sum for the time. Um, it's a significant change to the way the monarchy's funded. Uh, prior to this, they were pretty much self-funded, and they didn't really have the money to do that. So they were always in debt. Um, and instead, the country pays. And that's, you know, an argument that people use a lot now against the monarchy is, we're paying for these people. What are we really getting out of it? Um, the price for the crown is less autonomy. So he really does cede a little more power to Parliament in exchange. I mean, this is the point where you really do become a figurehead. You know, hmm. your, your decoration in the British domination of the world. So um, in some sense, he, you know, you mentioned George I and George II doing a lot to really modernize the monarchy, but this is the move that really turns it into what we know it today. Yeah. I mean, because that, that, that arrangement has not changed. You know, and it, it's an interesting time for this to happen because during most of George's reign, you know, he's beholden to Parliament. I mentioned one of the three qualities is he's supposed to acknowledge Parliament. But what that means is you're supposed to defer to them and let them run the country. But Parliament during George's entire reign isn't stable. Um, there were power struggles. I mean, I'm not going to go into all of it, but it was like one prime minister would rise, form a government on some kind of razor-thin margin, unable to hold on to power. He'd get shunted off. Somebody else would step in and take his place. And, you know, George has his favorites. He has his political rivals. He has, you know, he knows who he wants to get along with. He has people he'd rather see in power. But it's, it's a, really is a roller coaster which just plays, in, and I only bring it up because it, it just plays into the conflict in the Americas. Um, you know, it's just hard to maintain a government for very long, which means it's hard to maintain policy, and it's hard to maintain consistency. Um, and, you know, we already, we already talked about the Royal Marriages Act of 1772, but that, I only bring that up again because that sort of soured his relationship with Parliament. He really rammed that through. And they, they didn't want to do it. It was really unpopular. So after that, they kind of tried to keep him from meddling. Um, and so one of the consequences of all of this, though, is remember, the American colonies are over there. Um, they consider themselves Englishmen. They've just fought for Britain in two wars, the American-Indian War, and there were some conflicts over in the Americas for the Seven Years' War. Um, and Parliament's thinking... Uh, you know, America's getting a free ride. We're 
we're covering them, but they're, they're not contributing anything. So this comes the uh, problem as taxation without representation. Or, as I like to call it, the price of King George's love, a price we weren't willing to pay. <laughs> Another Hamilton quote. If, I'm sorry, if, there's, if you're sick of them, stop listening. Because they're, they're going to keep coming. Um, we were talking about maybe the, the crowd favorite character from Hamilton, so it's just going to happen. Yeah. Um, so the tensions begin with the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which limits westward expansion in the Americas in an effort to encourage expansion up and down the East Coast. So they want the Americans to go up into Canada, into the French territory, and down into Florida, i.e., like, take more territory from the French and the Spanish. Um, they don't care like, about the Ohio, West. forget Ohio, it's time to go to Maine. <laughs> well, they don't care because there's, there's no one out there holds that territory. It's not going to help them in Europe. The, whole, the right. whole point that I'm trying to make here and set the stage for is Parliament wants to know how do we make the Americas work for us because we've lost a lot of money defending this territory. It's time we get something out of it. So their first thought is we can antagonize France and Spain at home if we take more of their territory in the Americas. Most colonists are fine with this. They're all farmers. They don't really care. But there was a very small vocal minority that took issue with this and starts seeding the thoughts in the colonies that English rule is not a good thing. Then, out of these parliamentary struggles, emerges Prime Minister George Grenville. And his big thing is he wants to tax the colonies, which up to this point were not paying much of anything in taxes to Britain. They had taxes in the colonies to support life in the colonies, but they weren't they weren't being taxed by Great Britain. Um, but you know, as I mentioned before, Parliament's like, we need to get some money out of these people. So Parliament thinks we've been providing security. They should pay for the privilege to be Englishmen. And you know, as you know, the big issue there is, there are no representatives in Parliament representing the American colonies. So, from their perspective, and, and this is taxation without representation is not a new concept. This is a fundamental concept in Great Britain as Englishmen. They already feel they have this right, and all they want is for it to be extended to the American colonies. So the first tax that's really unpopular is in 1765, we see the Stamp Act. Basically, this imposes stamp duties on all documents in the colonies. And it perhaps would not have been a big issue, except newspaper at the time was printed on stamped paper. So hmm. the very industry that was incredibly affected by this tax was also uniquely situated to rail against it. And they couldn't print the newspaper on different paper that I don't know why it was printed on stamped paper I have no idea about that I'm just saying the newspapers were disproportionately affected and were in the perfect position to write stories about how unfair this tax was and you know like I said the colonists the main objection is we don't have representation in parliament so how can you tax us uh, George has issues with Grenville personally and so he he dismisses him at the time he still has you know I'm not sure if the monarch to this day could dismiss a prime minister. 
I think it goes to this idea that like she technically has to, you know how like she has to approve the parliament, the prime minister, and um, accept him his or in, and invite him to be prime minister, and then you know the queen is in charge of opening parliament and all of that. But I think if like say the queen had raised her hand and said, you know what, I don't want Boris Johnson to be prime minister, that really wouldn't have gone over. Like I yeah. don't think it would be allowed, and it was probably a similar situation then. Like I'm not sure. Like, after this exercise of power, um, like, well, maybe he did. I mean, you'll, you'll tell us. But this feels to me like probably one of the last instances where the monarch is deciding who's leading the government. Yeah, I mean, it's like 250 years ago. So things yeah. have obviously changed. But at the but time... But I could see this being the moment where that happens and Parliament says, hey, wait a minute, like, we're paying for your, your bills, your, right. your lifestyle, you just need to sit there silently and it's up to us to decide who leads us. Yeah, I mean, that relationship is definitely changing and I'm sure at the time this really was unpopular. But George is, you know, he's tired of Grenville. So the new prime minister is a man called Lord Rockingham who comes Mm -hmm. in and immediately repeals the Stamp Act. Um, And this is so popular that the colonists erect a statue of George in New York. They're they're like, yes! We love our king. He's he's heard our complaints and answered our prayers, even though George had, like, nothing to do with this. Um, but unfortunately, Rockingham doesn't last long as prime minister. I mean, it really is, like, an up-and-down roller coaster. And after several more shakeups, I mean, there were, like, three more par- prime ministers that come in that I didn't mention because they don't really change anything. The Tories come to power, who are led by Lord North, and, you know... Lord North's main concern is the unrest in the Americas because by this point they've start, they've levied more taxes, the colonists are getting more and more agitated by this and um, you know at the, by now they've they've done the Continental Congress, you know, they're really like exercising their rights um, or trying to. So Lord North repeals all of the taxes that have been levied against the colonists except for the tea tax. And George, you know, supports keeping at least one tax in there to keep up the right to levy taxes. So he kind of of the mind that if you repeal all the taxes, then you'll never be able to tax them again. And I'm really grossly oversimplifying the tea issues because it wasn't just a tax on tea. It was the fact that the British India, the East India Company had the right to import tea without being taxed, and the colonists did not. But Claire, col- do you know this is making me really sad because Are you out of one tea? of the last things I did this year while, you know, not at home was I was in Boston in um, late, late February, and as you know, and I went and I had tea on the boat in the harbor where, like, the Boston Tea Party was. Yeah. That's like one of the last things I did this year before I had to stay home all the time, ironically. The colonists, as Allie just said, got really pissed and threw a party in Boston Harbor uh, known as the Tea Party. They threw all the tea in the harbor in an act of protest. Interestingly, um, you know, a bunch of people protesting government interference went out and vandalized private property. So Hmm. something we... (laughs) a long history of in this country. Um, it's well, maybe not... in 250 years we'll have tourist attractions. Yes, yes. 
This did not go over well in Great Britain, though. Um, they, you know, it, really, compared to the entire revolution, I mean, the Boston Tea Party was like 20 people. Um, it really was not a massive event, but it got the message across, and Parliament's pretty unhappy. So, wanting to bring the colonists in line, they enact what the colonists called the Intolerable Act. Um, so what they did was they, because the Tea Party happened in Boston, the uh, brunt of the measures really affected Massachusetts. So they shut down the port of Boston, which was a big import-export hub in the colonies, and they just basically closed it for business. They could they they cut Boston off from its life lifelines, um, and they also altered the Massachusetts Charter so that the Crown could appoint the members of the upper house of the legislature. And what that means is they basically took away the right of the citizens in Massachusetts to self-govern. It's really important to notice that this did not come from George. Parliament was making the laws and George just supported them. So this goes back to that idea that he's supposed to sit back and let Parliament run the country. Modern historians are pretty sympathetic to George and say he was just doing what he was supposed to do as a constitutional monarch, which was to support the actions of Parliament. He gets a lot of the blame for all of this, but it wasn't coming from him, and he really wasn't in a position to stop it, nor should he have. So that's that's just one interpretation these days, but you know it speaks to that idea of maybe he really wasn't so much of a tyrant. Um, for his part, he was really monitoring the situation and he was really upset by the idea that the colonists were not falling in line, but he hoped for a political solution. He didn't want a war. He thought that they could work it out and he, he I don't think, anticipated that it would go as far as revolution. Um, but the colonists this was the last straw. As I mentioned, these are called the intolerable acts. They uh, really, really don't appreciate the interference. So by 1774, in every colony, they've circumvented British rule. So they've found a way around it. The British governors are there, and they're maybe ruling in name only, but in the colonies, they've figured out a way to do their own thing. Um, there's also skirmishes with the British troops, uh, notably the Boston Massacre. So, like I said, Massachusetts was kind of a hot spot for this because that's where the Tea Party happened, and so that's where a lot of the crackdown came. Um, and the Boston Massacre is, for those of you who don't know, British soldiers fired into a crowd, basically, of, um, I guess, protesters, really. And I'm like... Honestly, Claire, I'm having a moment. Like you're you're going through the beginning of this, and I'm like shades of Portland. <laughs> yeah, no, it's look. I I think this is timely because I don't want to get too political on this podcast. But if you're out there and you're saying like protest and resistance shouldn't happen in America, then that's not how America was founded. Like, go back to your history books refresh your memory because none of this is new um you know there's a reason all of this is enshrined in the constitution because it happened and you know the boston massacre was a big deal because um you know the, the british were tried in boston and you know one of the 
fun notes of history is that John Adams actually mm-hmm. defended the British soldiers. Yep. Um, and I, I assume everyone knows John Adams as the president of the United <laughs> States. Right? Um, you know, if you, if you, if you like to listen to Hamilton, he, he gets a bad rap in Hamilton. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, anyway, it's, the situation is escalating. Um, and in April of 1775, it's escalated to armed conflict. The shots ring out at Lexington and Concord, also in Massachusetts. That's where the war started. Um, and it's, it's revolution. The American Revolution has begun. So I think what's interesting from George's perspective is, like, as an American, we always kind of envision, like, the shots ring out at Lexington and Concord, and all of a sudden it's war. That's not really how it goes, you know? They're still trying to figure out a way to resolve it. There are British troops in the Americas attempting to keep people in line, but the American side at this point is not well organized. They don't really have an army. They have what they're calling a Congress, which is just a bunch of representatives from all of the colonies getting together and trying to figure out what they're gonna do. But it's Mm -hmm. not a full-blown revolution at this point. The colonists petitioned the crown, so they petitioned George to intervene with Parliament, um, but George ignores them and declares them all traitors to the crown. So as a result, in 1776, you get the Declaration of Independence, which I think is interesting to point out. So the Declaration of Independence, we think of the preamble, right? That's what you'd learn in school. We the people. Um, Like, or is that... Sorry. That's, the, That's constitution. the constitution. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. The Declaration like, of Independence is the like all men are created yes, equal. Yes, that's what I, that's yeah. what I'm that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, um, we I'm hold these sure. truths to be self-evident. <laughs> all men are created equal. Thank you. I'll just quote Hamilton because it's correct. Um but it's you know, we think of the preamble which kind of lays out this idea of like we're all equal, we're gonna we're we wanna be a just society. But what the Declaration of Independence really was is an itemized list of disagreements. Mm-hmm. They have like twenty seven counts that they and they lay them all against King George. So this is what it's really a piece of propaganda. They don't bring their complaints to Parliament. They're saying King George has done these horrible wrongs to us. And we want to be free of his control. And I think that's where it really sucks to be the king. Because even though Parliament is calling the shots, you're the figurehead. You're the leader of the country. You're on the money. So if they have a problem, they're going to lay it at your doorstep. They're not saying, And do you like, think that that's intentional, that, like, to attack the the symbolic figurehead? Yeah. Or do you think they were ignorant of, like, who's actually calling the shots? They're not ignorant. These are these men are Englishmen. They know how it works. It's it's just more effective as propaganda if you're fighting a tyrant king as opposed to the tyrant king and his, like, hundred people in parliament. Right. You know, and, and it's easier to have grievances against an oppressor than a puppet. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so the, seven, so the Declaration of Independence comes and the colonists pull down the statue of George in New York. So um, not still there. <laughs> an American tradition that continues today. Um, I thought that was like I would say not parallel. even just an American tradition, but like we really like pulling down statues. Yeah, well that's why I brought it up because I just thought it was an interesting parallel. Like for you get mad, you're like, I'm pulling down this statue. Nope. 
and not not to make light of the Black Lives Matter movement at all, but just an interesting parallel that that is a long and storied form of resistance in this country. Um, so it's now it's war. And George historically gets blamed for this as well. Um, Parliament instigated the war, but I think this is the part where he's maybe a little fairly blamed. He is unwilling to concede when things go south. Uh, he doesn't want to acknowledge the colonies as independent from Britain, and he just wants to outlast them um, and wear them down. From his perspective, um, you, you kind of have to think it makes sense. Like, what king would give up such vast territory when you're building a global in empire? You're talking about 13 colonies that you've won from France and Spain and with the, you know, the hard work of your people. You're not going to say, yeah, go go for it. You know, we're good. That that's At the same time, though, that argument should apply to, like, maybe you don't have such a hard line with them because... But they I are think, so valuable. I think no one, I think what I'm trying to point out here is like no one on the British side could conceive that the American colonists would win. They were, as I said, poorly organized. They're, they're 13 colonies. They all have different goals. Um, yeah, still and a no large money. Contingent of royalist loyal supporters in the colonies. I mean, it took a long time to get them all to band together to fight the British, and they didn't have at this t at this time. They don't have money. They don't have arms. I mean, it, it's it is a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower. <laughs> so, how many lyrics can we shove? I'm in gonna here? shove them all in. Um, and, you know, the other thing, too, is that at this point, this war is really popular in Great Britain. Like, army recruitment was up. Everybody was like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to crush the rebels and, you know, defend the empire. Um, and, you know, the British have some early successes, which kind of bolsters this thought that the rebels are going to be easily crushed. Uh, but I think the one thing that the British should have remembered was the French. So mm. by 1778, the French come in on the American side because, of course, they did. And the conflict escalates. And we talk about the French all the time because everybody, you know, remembers Lafayette. Um, do you want to take it? America's fading, favorite fighting Frenchman. Oh, okay, I was like, I'm not sure where you're going with okay. that. <laughs> um, so everybody remembers the French involvement because they were our biggest ally. They supplied us with troops and ships. And At a certain point, they're basically funding the war. <laughs> and money. I mean, they gave us money. They gave us the ability to wage a war against Great Britain. But it was also the Spanish and the Dutch. And, you know, if you're paying attention here, these are people that have interests in the New World. It's mm -hmm. not like Prussia's coming over and saying, yeah, we'll join in. Because they don't have any territory in the Americas, but France, Spain, and the Dutch all have an interest in Great Britain losing territory in the Americas. Yeah, you have to wonder, too, if, like, maybe they were cynical enough to think, okay, well, we this is an opportunity to remove the British influence over here, and then these colonists aren't going to really amount to much. So, like, I'm sure they assumed at some point they could just re-overtake some of that land as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody really predicted at that point that they would form a country. 
um, and that's not, at the time, the colonies, they just want to be independent. They aren't really talking about being a country. Um, you know, but that- I think this is a really fascinating point to bring up, especially from the European angle, is like, you know, we we grew up here, we, we're very trained to think of this as like our moment of birth and, you know, the heroic founding fathers who, you know, stamped out tyranny and like created a democracy. But at the same time, it's like that is allowed to happen because the Americas are the theater that now the European conflict has moved into. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately for the British, because the Europeans have an interest in them losing territory, they don't have any European allies in the war. Nobody's on Mm. their side because all of their European allies are concerned with what's going on in Europe. They don't have a vested interest in the Americas. So the British are really isolated and they're on their own. And once Spain, Spain, France, the Dutch get involved, it's, it's really like fighting three countries and your stepchildren. Like, it's just really not a good outcome. So as the, as the war grows more expensive, the British people are less supportive. They, they're just like, you know what, forget it. This is, we're done. This is stupid. In 1781, Cornwallis surrenders at Yorktown to the rebels, and Parliament sees the writing on the wall. George was so upset that he drafted an abdication notice. It was never delivered, but he's so upset at the loss of the territories that he's ready to abdicate the throne, um, which is like would have been a pretty big deal had he gone through with it. Um, Does se- he have a son old enough at this point to take over? Yeah. I mean, he has 15 kids. He's got plenty of heirs. Um, the Treaties of Paris are signed in 1782 and 1783. And the war is over. So basically, the Treaties of Paris covered a lot of things, but the big thing is that the colonies gain their independence and Spain gets Florida back. For now. For now, yeah. Spoiler alert. We get Florida. Um, So this is a big, heavy blow to George. You know, this is what he's known for. He's remembered as the king who lost the American colonies. um, And it did not... It affected his reign, it affected his popularity in Great Britain for a long time because by the time they lost the war, it was just seen as a really expensive mistake. And the outcome was kind of embarrassing. There's still these ongoing conflicts in Europe. They're, they're really just, they're you know out of a significant portion of money and they haven't gained anything. And a lot of people, you know, they sent soldiers over who died and never came home, so that's not popular with the people. You know... Parliament is still really unstable, and George is struggling, but he can't exert control over them. So after this, you see a more contentious relationship with Parliament, um, to the point where in 1783, Parliament actually passed a motion banning the king from meddling in the votes of Parliament, because he was trying to sway the outcome of policy making, and they, they had to tell him, like, no, that's not your role, you need to step back let us handle things from now on. Um, so he really is solidifying this purely symbolic role. Yeah, I mean, he, he is. And, and it really, I think part of it is like, it's, you have to look at it all, take it together. It's like the end of a detrimental war. Parliament's never been stable. Um, he's, he's constantly fighting with the prime ministers because they don't get along. That prime minister disappears when one comes in that he agrees with. That person doesn't last. 
Um, things do turn around um, when a man calls, called William Pitt becomes prime minister. They get along and they have similar goals. And also William Pitt is powerful enough in parliament that he actually is able to form a stable government. So things are starting to look up. George's popularity is starting to increase because the wars are behind him and as I mentioned he had 15 children with his wife the public is starting to view him as a family man so you know they're kind of like hey we have this king who is you know more focused on Great Britain at the moment because he's not so distracted by all of these wars parliament stables there you know it all kind of gets you know for good or bad as we've discussed the, he gets the credit for you know a stable government and he's got this happy family. He's not cheating on his wife. Um, things are good. But unfortunately, George starts to destabilize personally. So this is the descent into the madness of King George. This is the other mm -hmm. thing he's known as. In fact, I went to the royal family's website and they refer to him as permanently deranged. Um, like he, I mean, it's official I, diagnosis. Yeah, I haven't heard deranged. the word deranged in a while. So, but that's what he's, that's basically what he's known for is he just went mad. Um, and it, but it's not a one and done deal. It's like, we've talked about mental illness about a few monarchs. It, it comes and goes. And, you know, if you know anything about mental illness, it's episodes where it's not really what we're talking about. Um, and so no one's really sure what was the problem with George. He generally suffered from what's described as mania. So, you know, he would go on these crazy rants where he would speak like 400 words in a run-on sentence, it's come, speaking so fast that he would start foaming at the mouth. He would talk until he lost his voice. He could have been bipolar. Um, that's, you know, mania is obviously a symptom of bipolar. And he did have periods of depression the big diagnosis that a lot of people seem to think it is is something called porphyria, which can manifest in a lot of different ways, um, and mania is a symptom of it. And one of the other big symptoms of it is, um, like, purple or blue urine. Mm. That's a pretty telltale sign. Um, and George did suffer from that. There are accounts of his physicians describing his urine as red or purple, so that's the really the big Yikes. thing where people think it might be porphyria. And the thing about porphyria is it's a genetic condition. And as I mentioned, it can manifest in different ways. They think his was exacerbated by arsenic. They did some testing of his um, like hair samples that you know they dug up, and they did find evidence of heavy arsenic levels. And that could have been from the cosmetics in use at the time. Or, mm. you know, it could have been in his food or whatever, but... Um, most likely, as we know, they were wearing that very white makeup and powdering their wigs and all of that, and arsenic was common in a lot of these cosmetics. So it's likely that he was genetically predisposed to suffer from this condition, and the arsenic is what triggered it and really set it off. Um, well, and you did mention them marrying all these cousins. And well, actually, I'm glad you brought that up, because they think if he had porphyria, he inherited it from Mary, Queen of Scots. Interesting. So I guess, you know, remember she had all those weird illnesses that they couldn't really figure out what they were? Remember I was talking about that time where they wrapped her up in a blanket and, like, 
gave her a bottle of wine and like yeah. she had a miraculous recovery. Um, and then her son James was known to have periods of illness. And they, they say some of the symptoms that they had could be symptoms of porphyria. And if you, you know, it is a genetic condition. So they think if George had it, that was probably the source. Um, you know, Mary and James never had it to the extent that you could properly diagnose it. But for whatever reason, it really manifested itself in George. Um, but again, nobody knows because this was 250 years ago. So it's really just best guesses. And at the time, there's no treatment for this. I mean, they didn't understand mental illness. This is when they would throw people in an asylum and lock them up in a room and leave. You know, they would they would um, tie him to a bed and just make him rave until he passed out. Or they would bleed him, you know, get all the ill humors out. They, they really had no understanding of what it was and how to treat it. So he's kind of at the mercy of his condition. And by, no, by 1788 in November, he's like seriously deranged. Like there's he's he's ill so in 1789 parliament passes a regency bill for his son the prince of wales to act as regent um but george recovers so they don't need it and he's he's like i'm good i'm back the, and what's interesting is he did have periods of mental illness and if you look at when they occurred they're all preceded by great periods of stress so the loss of the colonies um he had some personal losses in the family that kind of set him off. So again, you know, no one really knows to what extent this is like a mental illness, you know, maybe bipolar mania, depression type of thing, but it does seem to be triggered by great periods of stress. Um, you know, so he recovers, but then the French Revolution happens. We talked about that a lot in our, you know, Marie Antoinette episode, so I'm not going to go too far into it, but this is a big complication in Great Britain. The nobles are terrified. They think the people in Britain are going to rise up and take all of their land. Um, and as a result of the French Revolution, so Queen Charlotte, it was actually great friends with Marie Antoinette and is like devastated by her death by guillotine. And then more hmm. importantly for the English is that Napoleon comes to power and declares war on France, on um, Great Britain. And the country, once again, is embroiled in an expensive and drawn-out conflict. And this time it has, there's more danger because, you know, France is right there across the channel and the threat of invasion is huge. So they're shoring up the Navy, thinking that the French are going to come and invade the shores of Great Britain the two sides eventually did broker a peace deal, but George was never convinced that it would last. He 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 was like, "This is this is fake. They're gonna come destroy us." We ha you know, and as a king, this was really really stressful for him. So by 1804, so they signed a peace treaty with the French in 1802. In 1803, he's saying like, "I don't think this is gonna last." And by 1804, he's ill again. He makes a short recovery, but by 1810, his condition is. Permanent. He's like permanently deranged. And in this case, his younger daughter had died, and that seems to be the final straw for him mentally. He just he snaps. He accepted the Regency Act in 1811, and the Prince of Wales ruled as regent for the rest of George's life. Um, he he lived at Windsor. I mean, he he rules for another ten years almost, but he, only in name only. His son is calling all the shots behind the scenes. Um, 
by this point, he's got full-blown dementia. He's blind. He's deaf. Um, he was declared king of Hanover in 1814, and he had no idea. His wife, Charlotte, dies in 1818. He has no idea. And by so the, sad. It is really sad, because by the time he died, he's just remembered to history as Mad King George. And it's so interesting because, you know, in modern times he could be treated, you know, there's no reason that would have had to happen. Yeah, I mean, porphyria is a really rare illness, but there are treatments for it, and I think... Well, they might not be able to treat the porphyria, but they could treat the symptoms. Yeah, and it's... I mean, it's it's really sad because he actually, you know, he reigned for a really long time, and, and you know, all everybody remembers is he's like this mad tyrant. And I think America takes a lot of blame for that because they certainly had a vested interest in even after the war was over in kind of continuing this perception that George was an unjust ruler. I mean, look, you know, he he accepted American independence, you know, in 1785, John Adam is named ambassador to Great Britain. He goes, he meets King George. By all accounts, King George is relatively polite to him and has accepted America as an independent entity from Great Britain. It wasn't what he wanted, but he didn't fight to the end of his life against it it's just it's it's sad because you know there's a lot going on and I think he gets a bad rap because if you look at what was going on in Europe this is not a stable time I mean when you're talking about the seven years war you can trace a direct line to the American Revolution the French Revolution I mean this is a pop populism is rising monarchy people are wondering why do we need a king and queen you know in France they decided they didn't very violently very violently so who's the, is this, is he followed by George IV? Yes. So George IV is his son, and um, his granddaughter is Queen Victoria. Okay. So George IV was, so um, all of his sons, you know, it's kind of sad. He had 15 children, and a lot of them died relatively young. Um, but his sons, he was, they were a great disappointment to him. You know, his, so we talked about the Royal Marriages Act. His brothers were considered ne'er-do-wells and had made these really unsuitable marriages but George was also very disappointed in his sons you know they also were kind of philanderers and you know if you the reason Queen Victoria came to the throne is because none of them managed to get married and produce a legitimate heir and except for the Duke of Kent Victoria's father who you know died when she was a baby but you know they got Victoria out of it but you know I mean, for having 15 children, it's it's kind of shocking that after his son died, the only person left was a baby girl. So that's King George. I mean, there's a lot we could have, we could have talked about a lot more. There's just, I wanted to focus on the American piece of it, obviously. I think you just see a time where the monarchy is changing, the world is changing, um, and, you know. I think this one is definitely an example of, like, ripple effects, of history, like, you know, one thing happens differently and who knows what might be different. Yeah, I mean, because a lot of what he put in place is still in place today for the monarchy. And you almost look at it as like he was just, you could look at it as he's just trying to figure out how to get the monarchy to survive. Um, 
And he's getting a bad rap for actually being a good king. Like, like technically to the letter being a good king, yes, which was, is just he was doing what be he was quiet and do. do your job. <laughs> yeah, because I think I think when you think about it from, you know, when you hear about him, it's putting a lot of stock in what his role was as king, you know, and I think because when you're learning about it in like the second or third grade, it's a little complicated to go into the whole concept of constitutional monarchy. It's easier to teach history to children as if one man was in charge making all of the decisions, not a series of prime ministers with competing political motives. Right, which is how you end up with the gross oversimplification of George Washington defeated King George. (laughs) Right. Actually, George Washington is partly responsible for starting the French and Indian War. It's true. So, you know, on on behalf of Great Britain, but still. Of course. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of nuance there that you can't really cover. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff in his personal life that I didn't really get into. Um, You know, I, I talk about that story of the morganatic secret wife. But, um, you know, Queen Charlotte was kind of interesting. She's the one that a lot of people claim was actually of um, African heritage. Oh, interesting. But I looked into that because I thought maybe that would be an interesting angle to cover. But I think it's not really relevant and it's so unsubstantiated that it's not even... There's not enough there there to to really go into it and do it justice, so... I skipped it. Um, so I hope that's okay. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, you, you've you convinced me that he wasn't Tyrant King George. He definitely probably was Mad King George, but um, not, you know, that's more sad than anything and just a circumstance. Uh, you know, he's a victim of the time in which he lived. I mean, we talked about this a bit with, um, wait, was it another George? No. Um, who was the one who was catatonic? Oh, um, Henry, Henry the sixth, Henry the sixth. Yeah. 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 Where he it would kind of come and go. Yeah. But that, you know, had he been born into a different time, maybe he could have been treated. Right. Right. And a lot of it is like, you would at least be able to diagnose him. Whereas they couldn't even right. do that. Um, you know, at least they were far enough removed from the time where, you know, he wasn't possessed by the devil, but, um, they couldn't, they just couldn't really do anything for him. And they also couldn't keep it quiet, you know. And it's weird, because, like, I did read about, like, his son and his, so Charlotte never really um, meddled in politics, except for she wanted to be George's regent, at least the first time around, and her son really fought her on that. And they would argue over what was in the best interests. And she called him, like, the enemy of the king and stuff. So they had some tensions. But then, by all accounts, they, you know, patched things up. And she, like, when she died, he was holding her hand. So, you know, I think that just comes down to, you know, wanting to do what's best for the country. And maybe she didn't feel like her son was ready to act as regent. I don't know. That was just kind of like a little side note in one of the documentaries that I read or that I was watching. But, um, you know, it's, it's just kind of an interesting footnote in history of like, there was a lot more to his reign than the mad tyrant king crushing and, you know, the empire. And there's a lot, there was a lot going on in India while he was a king that I didn't get into. Um, because, you know, that's a whole other ball game that's a whole other yeah centuries long story um 
Well, I, I thought this was interesting, and I think even belated makes for a great um, July 4th episode. Yeah, it's still July. <laughs> it's a July 24th episode, yeah. um, only two weeks late. It will still be weeks, July when this airs. It's true. So um, I don't know when we'll be back with another episode. I do think we know who we want to cover, yeah. um, but maybe we'll leave that as a surprise. Um, I feel like that on me to get that one going um but yeah so i hope you enjoyed this i hope you enjoy the the surprising parallels to current history and the current moment and and until we come back i mean as always stay safe um wear a mask please wear a mask yep um and we'll be back soon okay until next time till then bye MonarchCast is produced by me, Allie, and me, Claire, and our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.